when you go into a grungy bar, you're liable to hear a certain kind of joke. And a joke usually starts out with something like, you know, and a rabbi, an Italian priest, and you know, an Irishman meet at the pearly gates. And they have this discussion or debate with St. Peter about whether they can get into heaven. And these jokes, you know, they take certain turns or twists and go in different places. But usually something, the punchline of the joke is usually something like, well, maybe I don't want to go up to heaven. Maybe I want to go to the other place because that's where all my drinking buddies are. <laughs> something like that. You know, you probably heard, uh, No. Okay, maybe you don't go to grungy bars, but this kind of joke is around. You probably heard something like it before where, you know, the punchline is, you know, heaven allegedly is a pleasant place. Allegedly is a place you want to go to, but it's certainly not as fun as going to a bar, you know. Maybe an, an upscale version of this joke was uttered by Machiavelli, the guy who wrote The Prince, allegedly, allegedly on his deathbed. You don't really know when the people say that. On their deathbed, they say. But alleged, it's the kind of thing he could say on his deathbed. And he's the kind of person who would say this. <laughs> and what he says is, quote, I desire not to go to hell. I desire to go to hell, not to heaven. In hell, I shall enjoy the company of popes and kings and princes. But in heaven are only beggars, monks, hermits, and apostles. See, I actually enjoy this kind of joke, you know. I, maybe not going to a grungy bar, but I enjoy this kind of humor, this kind of joke, because it, it forces the question, it brings to the fore the question, why, why do you want to go to heaven? Why is heaven a place of desiring? Why is it a place that, that people consider paradise? And if you think about it, I don't know what you think about when you think about going to heaven. Like, is this something you want to do? Is this, what is the glow of heaven? Is it that, you know, you get wings? You know, you like get some kind of ultralight set up so you can fly where you couldn't before? Is, is it that you, you reside on cotton, can, cotton candy clouds? Right? Is that, is that what's so great about heaven? I mean, what is it? Do you get 10 virgins? What is, what is the appeal of heaven? Why do you want to go there? Why do you want to be there? Well, this morning we have a passage of a man who says he was actually caught up into heaven. There was actually a door that opened, like a trap door. This is his account. And an invitation came to come up through the door and actually glimpse heaven, to actually go into heaven and to see what makes heaven heaven. What is it that is so great about heaven? And so he gives us this account. It's, it, you know, it's remarkable that there could be such a thing, right? That a door would open. And, you, and so we could say, come up here and let me show you what makes heaven heaven. It's extraordinary. And so this is an account of a glimpse of heaven where we might be able to answer this question, what makes heaven heaven? It's sort of like, you know, one of those after-death experiences where the person dies and comes back, only without the dying part. It's nice for John, the one writing this. Let's read it. Please stand with me as I read from Revelation chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through, I guess, 6 or 7. 
here from Revelation chapter 4, and then one verse from chapter 5 about this, this experience that John is having and what he sees. And I'll be reading the NIV version. If you want to follow along, it's, it's also in your bulletin. <clears throat> Again, Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone on it, sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashings of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Then I saw a lamb standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. As we look at this passage, and what I want to do especially is point out what draws John's attention, what turns John's head when he gets up to heaven. The first thing, really, that captures his attention that he's drawn to, and this is, this is something because there are a lot of things that John sees in heaven, a lot of extraordinary things, amazing things that he sees in heaven. I mean, there are all these, these horses, these white horses and red horses that he goes on here in his, in his account to talk about thousands of angels. He sees thousands of angels. He sees this one, at one point he sees this lion creature, and it's covered with eyes and has eyes. And, and he says, and even eyes under his wings, because it's a winged lion. I don't know how comfortable that would be for the lion creature, but there it was. It's incredible. Heaven is not a quiet place. Even in this passage, we see as he starts to describe it, all sorts of things. There's rumblings, there's lightning, all sorts of things to see, all sorts of dramatic sights, which is why Revelation is fodder for so many nightmares and you know, popular best-selling novels. There's so much going on there. There's so much to see. But the first thing is what I want us to see. The first thing that draws John's attention, that that captures, that he's riveted to that. The first thing that he's got to say, the first thing that he sees is the throne and the one on it. it all, it's all about the throne. You see, notice that? Verse 4, the throne. Verse 5, the throne. Verse 6, the throne. It's, everything in heaven seems related to the throne. And this is true later on in Revelation as well. As you read the book, 
All things seem to come from, proceed from that throne and the one on it. And, you know, uh, at this point, it, it's kind of cleaned up in the English when we read the English, a nice sentence, which is nice. But in, in the Greek, it's sort of awkward. It's a, he has this dangling participial phrase in the original Greek. And, and you know, scholars make a, make a deal of this, make a big deal of this. The, the Greek of the, of the book of Revelation is well, it's odd at points. It's... Um, it doesn't always conform to the rules of grammar. <laughs> and so that, that this bears on the discussion of who wrote this book because is it John the Apostle, they debate, or is it some other John? Is it some prophet? <clears throat> because the Greek is very uh, you know, unusual at points. So this is one of the places where it's just, it kind of leaves you hanging. Now, I would tell you that what seems to me as I'm reading this is you've got somebody who comes along and he is just overcome with what he's seen. Either he's seen it now or he's writing about it afterwards. And it's almost like he loses the words. He said, there's, and there's, I see this throne. There's one on the throne. And, and, you know, it's like, where's the end of the sentence? He's just try, He's overcome with the beauty, the, the indescribable beauty of the one he's seen. And so all he can do, basically, is, is spout out, you know, gemstones, right? That's what he's doing in verse 3. What he's describing is something beautiful beyond description. And so he says, it's like, it's like jasper, it's like ruby. Well, you know, jasper is not like ruby, okay? Either the kids or the gemstones, right? So it's hard to read this without thinking of the gals here who have... Jasper and Ruby and their family, right? Well, Jasper's not like Ruby, right? Well, Jasper, the gemstone, is not like Cornelian or Ruby either. So what's John trying to do? Is he trying to say that the, the one on the throne is different, different colors? Is it, that, is it like he's crystalline or something like that? Now, what he's doing, friends, is, is trying to somehow convey what is beautiful beyond description. So I think that what he's doing is he's just picking out the most beautiful things maybe he's ever seen. Maybe he's seen a ruby, you know? So he's saying, you know, it's, it's, it's like a ruby. It's like, a, it's like these gemstones, the most beautiful things you can think of. It's beautiful beyond description. So what does that tell us about heaven? What does that tell us about the structure of heaven? What does that tell us about what makes heaven heaven? You know, this is a fascinating picture to me because of what comes next in verse 3, that the, this emerald, see how he puts that? There's, there's this thing that goes around the throne, encircling the throne, that is a rainbow that shines like an emerald. Do you see that? So there's a, somehow he's describing a ring that goes around this way or maybe around this way or, or both, I don't know. This, this ring that goes around the throne shines like an emerald. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to me because I have a background in geology. And I remember studying in mineralogy the molecular structure of an emerald. The emerald is a group of rocks. Uh, it's, a, it's a member of this group of rocks called the cyclosilicates or barrels. And they're called that cyclosilicates because they're made up of these little molecules 
silicon oxygen tetrahedra, they're called. And it's where you have this one silicon atom, and you have four oxygen atoms. And they, they join around the silicon, so you have this tetrahedral shape. These silicon oxygen tetrahedron are then joined at the corners. And when you join that at the corners, they go around, they form a ring. It's a ring of silicon oxygen tetrahedra. And these corners, these, these molecules also have corners on the outside, and they join together with other rings. So you have a whole sheet of these rings. You stack up the sheets, and you've got a barrel. That's what they call cyclosilicate. Now, there are, there are different kinds of barrels, and some of them are pretty ordinary. Like, you could be walking down the street and pass a barrel, and you would like, like whatever. You know, you wouldn't even notice it. It wouldn't turn your head at all. But what makes an emerald an emerald is a titanium plus three ion, not titanium, chromium, beg your pardon, chromium plus three ion that sits in the middle of that ring. If you have enough chromium there and it's, and it's there to be in the middle of the ring, then you get the beautiful, glorious luster of an emerald. That's it. So the chromium three ion is there, have the glory of an emerald. Chromium-3 ion is not there. You have an ordinary rock or some other kind of barrel. Isn't this kind of remarkable if you think about it? Because what we have in the molecular structure of an emerald is a mirror of what's going on with John's emerald in heaven. You see, what, what makes heaven heaven is the one in the center of that emerald ring. What makes, what turns John's head, what gives heaven its distinctive flavor, its, its desirability, is not all of these things, these other things that John sees and he'll go on to describe and we'll look at together. And it's not, you know, the landscape, okay? And it's not, you know, getting wings. That isn't what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven what it is, what makes heaven the place is the throne and the one on it the one at the center of the throne. So this is true. We can recognize it in our everyday experience, can't we? Like, what's, what makes a, a party a good party? It's who's there, right? When you get excited about, you're excited about going to a party, what are you excited about? It doesn't really matter where it is. I mean, it could be a nice place, it could be a common place, but your thought, what makes it great to go to? It's who's there. Well, that's what's true about heaven. It's who's at the center. That's what distinguishes the place. And heaven would carry an ordinary aroma, but for that throne and the one on it. That's what we're seeing here in this imagery. What makes heaven desirable is the one at the center of the throne. So actually, you know, I guess the guys in the grungy bar were kind of right, you know, because they were thinking about who it is they want to be with. And this is what makes heaven heaven. And it's, his absence is what makes, you know, the other place the other place. So and when you move to verse 4, it's kind of the secret of the passage. This isn't only true of a place it's also true of a people. 
So you have these 24 kind of heavenly people now, and you notice that they're gathered as well in a circle around the one on the throne. And they have these thrones. I don't know if they're holding hands, like silicon oxygen tetrahedra or not, but they're around, again, another circle around the throne, and they're beautiful. He is so beautiful. The one on the throne is so unimaginably, indescribably beautiful that it, it's, it's like it crowns them with gold, these beautiful ones. So it's what makes the heavenly people, what gives them their luster, what gives them their glory. It's the one they're gathered around. You know, this is, we can kind of recognize this is true in, in normal life, in our everyday life, isn't it? It's like, if you want to be beautiful, one great way to be beautiful is to hang around someone else who's beautiful, right? You're walking down the street, as a beautiful, you see a beautiful woman with a guy, he's like, well, that guy must be beautiful because she's so beautiful, right? Or you see a beautiful guy, he's like, well, she must be beautiful because he's so beautiful, right? You hang around beauty and you're, you're kind of crowned with the, you know, a derivative beauty by proximity. <laughs> That's what's going on here. It's the same with these heavenly people. What gives heaven its distinctive beauty, what gives heavenly people their distinctive beauty is the same thing. It's who they're gathered around. And that's why you get later in the book of Revelation, you get to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, and you see these jewels again come up. When? When you're talking about the bride, the one who's coming towards intimacy with the one on the throne. And the bride comes, you know, you see all these jewels come up again. Again, this indescribable beauty because of who this one, who this group of people is centered on. This heaven-bound bride. And so you realize that what, what's being said here is that what, what makes us beautiful, what makes any people beautiful, is who we are encircling. I could put it that way. Who we're centering on. When you center on this one who's on the throne, who's so beautiful, it makes you beautiful in the eyes of heaven. It makes you beautiful in the eyes of God. And that's his, his opinion determines reality about what's really beautiful and what's not. And so, you know, that's what this church is about. We're having this newcomer's lunch to help people who are coming in understand this. But this is, this is where it is. This is what it's about is that what we do is, is try to encircle this one. That's all that we're trying to do. And that's why we, every Sunday, you know, we do put, it's a lot of work putting on this service. You know? so please thank the people who make this happen every week. Please remember to thank them because it's, it's a big deal. We go through all this effort in order to surround the one on the throne, in order to enthrone him, to be like those 24 elders going around the throne. That's what we're trying to do here every Sunday, to focus our attention, to focus our affections on the one on the throne and to keep him there. And that is what makes this church what it is. It's what, it's what is the engine of the things that we do. A lot of beautiful things you might see happening in this church as you're coming in, and I see them. I was just talking with Keith this week about the Phoenixville Outreach, the Phoenixville Refuge, and the beautiful things that are going on there. It's just beautiful things. You know what the engine of that is? It's the one on the throne. 
It's our focus on the one on the throne. And we find that when we do that, it brings beautiful things from heaven down to battle-worn earth. That's why we do this. That's what we're trying to focus on. And you know, it's, it, it, makes, it makes a people uncommon because there are a lot of common rocks. You know, in, in, if you take cyclosilicates, there are other things, there are other ions that can go in the middle of that ring. And then you don't have an emerald. There's plenty of other ions or nothing that can go in the middle of that ring. Then you don't have an emerald anymore. And the same is true in people's lives. You get people, and, and what do you see when you go out into the world? You see people just, just putting other things in that ring. And there's a lot of things you could put in that ring that seem to make sense to put into that ring. You could put your political party in that ring. So that's what your affection is around. That's what you're centered on. That's what your attention is about. Or you could put your children in that ring. You'd say, this is what I am about. This is what I'm centered on. This is what my life is centered on. You could put your career in that ring. You could put, you could put your relationship in that ring. Almost seems justified, right? Everybody needs somebody to love. You could put a relationship in that ring. It makes you common. When you put all these other things, any of these things that you're putting in the ring, in the ring, as the center, makes you just an ordinary rock. And actually, what I see is, you put someone besides the beautiful one in that ring, it leads to some very ugly actions. If you put your children, if you put your children in the center of that ring, you will smother them. If you put your career in the center of that ring, you will end up sacrificing the people around you. It's true, isn't it? Um, if you put the relationship in the center of that ring, said this relationship, this is what I'm about. If you put that in the center of the ring of your heart, you will crush it. Why? Because all of these things, these are good things, but they were never meant to be at the center of the ring. They were never meant to be this, the, the thing that you focus on. They're meant to be part of the silicon oxygen tetrahedral, right? Around the ring. They're meant to be the surrounding structure. Never meant to be at the center. And so they take away the luster of a truly human life. But if you put the beautiful one in the ring, that allows these other things to take their rightful place as the ones around the throne, not on the throne. This is the glory of heaven, is that the one on the throne, on the throne means his will is done. On the throne means whatever happens in heaven starts from the throne. It is always God's will. It is always the thing that God esteems and, and holds up as right and true. That's why heaven's so beautiful. When he's on the throne, these other things can take their rightful place. So let's get back to the throne then. What is it, what is it that makes the one on the throne, so beautiful that, that John loses his words, he loses his Greek over trying to, trying to capture what it is that is, is indescribable to him. What is so indescribable about this one? Can we understand it? Well, we find out as the scene goes on 
in chapter 5, verse 6, the beauty of the one on the throne comes from what he does. So I read that verse because John is trying to digest what he's seen in, in, in heaven, on the throne. And you notice in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, he says what? <clears throat> in the midst, is what it actually literally says in the Greek, and mezzo, in the midst of the throne, there is this lamb. Now, this, is, this really, this really frustrates translators because they don't know how to translate this. Like, what does that mean, in the midst of the throne? I mean, how do you translate that? So if you have a different translation, you'll know. Some translators say, well, that must mean that uh, he's standing, the lamb is standing between the one on the throne and the four living creatures, right? Because it's, maybe that's what he means by in the midst of. Like he's sort of standing off to the side, I don't know, around with the elders, something like that. And other translators say, they just, <clears throat> well, basically they throw up their hands and they say, well, he's on the throne. And that's what ours does this morning. You know, it says, Basically, he's on the throne. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't really explain it either. Is like, is the one who is and was and is to come? Does he have the lamb around his shoulders or something? Is like he, he's on the throne with him, or what does what does that mean? How could it be? It's confusing. You have two persons, one God. You notice that, and I'll, I'll just say because we were we were talking about this last week, right? It's always good to read Revelation chapter four with Revelation chapter 5. Always good to read them together because what you, do, what you have are two parallel scenes of worship. And what you find is Revelation chapter 4, the one who is and was and is to come, the one on the throne is worshiped for what he has created, all these things. You get to chapter 5 and you find the lamb who is somehow in the midst of the throne also is also worshiped. And in pretty much the same language, pretty much using the same words. And this, in a book that makes it abundantly clear, absolutely clear, that you only worship God. You only worship God. Two different times in, in the book of Revelation, you know, someone tries to start worshiping. Like, no, 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 no. You only worship God. That book makes it very clear. So whatever you think about first century Judaism and whether sometimes they worshiped angels and things like that, not in this book, no. You must worship God, and yet here we have the one on the throne and the lamb being worshipped in the same language. What does it tell us? Again, we're dealing with God when we're dealing with each of them. So it's a lamb that he sees. And why the lamb? Because it's cute. It goes, bah, bah. Is another sight in heaven? Is it is because it's woolly? No, it's because it's the one sacrificed. You see how he says it? A lamb as if it had been slain. What John is talking about is the Bible's Passover lamb. Again, tying up all the themes of the Bible. Again, the lamb of the Passover. He's saying that is at the center. And friends, this is the center of the emerald. Because the one who is on the throne committed the most beautiful act that's ever been done. Because the one on the throne came off the throne. Because the one on the throne became common. And he had, you know, no particular beauty that we should desire him. He became common. Why? 
so that we who gather around him could become uncommon. In fact, he became positively ugly by dying and taking on a criminal's cross so that you and I could become beautiful about heaven. And if it doesn't excite you about heaven, then you're, you're not going to enjoy heaven. It's not a place where you want to be because this is the center of the emerald. If you, if you can be excited that the things that are ugly inside of you are being done away, the things that make me ugly, the ways in which I turn into myself rather than to others and to, and to the one on the throne, those things that make me so ugly are being done away by this most beautiful act of the lamb in the midst of the throne. That's what makes heaven heaven. Because the first became last, because the one on the throne came off of it. The one at the center of the emerald came out of it. And I see this happening, actually, here. You know, you, you say, how do you become beautiful? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple if you want to become one of the beautiful, one of the rare, one of the uncommon. You simply take that thing, that ion that's at the center right now, take it out, and take the one who's beautiful and put it in. You take those other things that I mentioned, your career, your, your worship, your children, your relationship, you take them out of the center, and the Bible calls that repentance. And you take the beautiful one, you put him in the center, and the Bible calls that faith. Putting your trust in his beauty rather than your own. When you do that, you become a glorious, lustrous emerald. And what's wonderful about what I see happening here at Ironworks is I see, I see beauties happening. I see this happening in people's lives. One of the rewards of the job is I get to see these beauties happening in people's lives. And it makes you precious. It makes you, it makes you uncommon. You know, why, you know why emeralds are so precious? It's because they're so rare. I found this out, actually, when I decided to marry my girlfriend. You know, uh, there was a certain point where I made the decision, okay, I'm going to ask her. I'm gonna, and then I realized, well, I, you're supposed to have a ring, right? And I said, you know what? I'm going to do something different. Really, because of this passage, based on this passage, I'm going to get an emerald ring instead of a, a diamond ring for an engagement ring. Because then, then I'll, what I'm going to try to say to her is, I want our relationship to be centered on God. You know, just like in heaven. I want our relationship to be centered on God. And I thought this was really a brilliant idea because I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And I thought, then I don't have to buy a diamond. I just have to buy an emerald, right? I thought, this is great. What a great idea, right? And so spiritual. <laughs> so I went down to the diamond district in New York City. It's this whole row of, of jewelry stores. I went in, and to my shock... I found out that emeralds are more expensive than diamonds. You're shaking your head. You knew that? I didn't know that. Who knew? Emeralds per carat are more expensive than diamonds. Man. And so I was down there on the street 
in the diamond district, and, and I had a big dilemma on my hands. Either I could get a small diamond ring that I could afford, or I could stick with this stupid spiritual idea about emeralds. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Well, if you're curious how that story turned out, maybe after the service, you can surreptitiously look down at my wife's hand. It's just not, not obvious, just kind of as you're passing. Go talk to her. Look down at her hand, see how that turns out. But the point is, friends, when you really do this, if you're one of these people who put the beautiful one at the center, you are so rare. The earth has a hard time producing emeralds. You know, the earth has an easier time producing uh, diamonds it's around these kimberlite pipes. But it's, it's actually difficult to, for the earth to, to produce a diamond. That's why it's such a fantasy when you get these uh, stories with these big emeralds. It's like never happens. Like that movie with Michael Douglas romancing the stone. I remember that, and they had, this, they had an emerald this big. That's complete fantasy. You, there's no emerald in the world that's, that's that big. Right? Because it's so rare. That's you. That's you. If you are doing this, you'll notice you are uncommon in the world. And this is what makes you beautiful in the eyes of heaven. This is what makes you beautiful in, in real terms. What we're getting in the book of Revelation is seeing the world as it actually is. Even though it's kind of with, with these exaggerated images and these fantastic beasts, we're really getting a perspective from heaven on the way the world really is. And when you put God at the center, you are beautiful. I don't care what your friends say. I don't care what your enemies say. I don't care what your mirror says. You are so stunning. You are so glorious, more glorious than the most dazzling music video. And you will turn angels' head. So take this invitation now. Put him at the center and be beautiful. Be an emerald. Amen.